for December 4th, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 805. Go for the rollerblades! Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are gathering together as uh, we do every year to celebrate. Through the years, we all will podcast together. If the fates allow, hang a shining MP3 upon the highest. Bow. I don't know. I come up with these things on on just right off the cuff. They're off the dome. They're They're not all going to be winners. I suppose. How how would an MP3 shine? It's an in, intangible. It's an intangible thing. Uh, Have like we the, forgotten Winamp so quickly? Uh, Winamp Visualizer, man. That's how your MP3 yeah. shine. Leave I that guess so. Llama's right ass, guys. Like yeah. early yeah. early on Winamp. in the even in the iTunes days, the iTunes, the Mac only iTunes days, there was a visualizer where it was like, uh, you know, you wanted to watch like trippy. Uh, you know, starfields or something, or like colorful things bouncing around, and it was it was a decade before marijuana was legalized in so many states. I mean, what what even you know what even was the the part of it? What even was the 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 good of that? You know, that song "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." That's that song is really sad. Uh, in oh, yeah. in Meet Me in St. Louis, it's not through the years we'll be we all will be together. She says someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Um, and like uh, and the the message and Judy Garland does it very well with her kind of like plaintive. Uh, sad eyes. I think she's like sitting on a windowsill, like looking out. Um over a winter cityscape, right? And it's like, uh, have, you know, uh, someday soon we all, we all will be together. And the message is basically that, yeah, everything, everything has gone to pot, but like, uh, let, have yourself a merry little, a merry little Christmas. Anyway, I'm, I'm not rather ho, 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 ho. <laughs> I hate the holidays. Pete Fenzel. Uh, I'm a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Uh, what, what are you, Pete Fenzel? Are you, are you a Grinch well, as well? I'm not a Grinch, but I will say, this is what I'll say. Because I have to, I have to follow up that "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" discussion because I love that song so much. And one thing that I really love about it oh, because it you? is a very sad song. Oh yeah, I love it's that, been, song. that oh, song. I didn't know you were particularly devoted to it when I brought it up. No, I, I would, I would even venture to say that uh, through the years, uh, you know, either whether it's through the years we all will be together, or someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Yeah. Uh, but till then, we'll have to muddle through somehow and whatnot. Uh, you, so you know the story of how the real, not the, I say the real lyrics, the uh, the more common lyrics came about, right? No, uh, is it like uh, you know Frank Sinatra was sitting around, you know, drinking and noodling with a pencil across the across the thing, and he's like, ah, we got to get some better lyrics here, you know? What are what are these lyrics? I I don't know. Why. I I don't think Frank Sinatra noodles. That's offensive to Italian Americans. But it is that Frank Sinatra changed them personally, and it's because he thought they were a downer. He was recording the song, and he's like, we got to punch it up, and he and he and he sang the. Uh, uh, hang a shining star upon the highest bough and have yourself a merry little Christmas now, which here's the thing. If you understand what Sinatra is doing and why it is not less sad, right? <laughs> it is it is just braver, right? It is just putting a brave face on it. Uh, and it's like, come on, we all get it, right? Like we all understand how we feel about this. Like, let's not bother to sing about it. Let's think something with a little bit more, uh, 
Well, we're going to kick it up a notch, right? Um, I think the term is, I got to jolly this up, is I believe what he actually oh, said. Oh, is what he said, yeah. Uh, to the, yeah, to the, gotta, and he asked, yeah, it's to the co-writer of the original song. It wasn't like to some random person. I got I got a uh, holly, I got a holly jolly this up. While he was he was being run by the mob and and knew that he would be you know working well into his uh, you know well he'd be they'd they'd uh, he'd be taken off the stage in a pine box. That's how much money the mob was making from him. Oh yeah, he knew that uh, he'd have to do it forever and ever and ever and uh, would never never be able to stop. And so uh, wanted to jolly it up, jolly it up, not dwell oh, yeah. on the. You know, the chairman didn't want to dwell on the uh, on on the downside of of anything like that. Well, Pete, have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Thanks. Yeah, I was just I've definitely used that quatrain uh, as as like Facebook question. What are your favorite song? What's your favorite you know uh, song lyric rhyme? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's like that's up there for me. That that section of that song is up there for me of all songs. I just I love it so much. Uh, just but, uh, uh, let me go down. Let me go down another another rabbit yeah. hole, and I know we we still have to intro, we have to bring Mark in, but oh, yeah. another rabbit hole here. Our our teacher, our common teacher. I I wouldn't say our mutual. No, I guess our mutual teacher, um, our mutual friend. I think right. Like even though that's the title of a Dickens novel, is technically indirect. It means like our friend in common, our common teacher, uh, John Hollander, who taught uh, writing poetry in college, was um uh, used to talk about rhymes. And he would say he had a thing where the rhyme gets stronger. Um, the rhyme gets stronger the the less the words are associated with one mm-hmm. another. So there's an inverse correlation between kind of word association and kind of awesomeness, right? Yeah. Of of the rhyme. Whereas, like you know, I don't know, love, dove, and moon above might be like. Um, might be, uh, you know, kind of like low on that scale, but uh, yeah. love and glove is higher on that scale, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, yeah, that that's uh, that that, and like uh, I feel like, um, allow and bow are are pretty good. Like it's a verb and a noun. Bow is an uncommon word. Uh, also, allow and somehow uh, also of uh, you know a verb and an adverb. Um, I, I guess like, uh, maybe a little more related, related conceptually. I don't know. Do you, do you have a similar feeling about, uh, about oh, yeah. rhyme? Yeah. Well, cause and I, and this is a great example of what I love, but I go the other way with it, that the real great rhyme in the Sinatra version is hang a shining star upon the highest bow and have yourself a merry little Christmas now because it because if it's somehow and now those are both adverbs right it's it's there's mm. not as much of a distance but the way that the fact that you go to the trouble of saying have yourself a merry little christmas now drawing attention to like what you would be doing at other times right, right? like or or also taking it as an order that you must jolly it up <laughs> right <laughs> that was, I just, I, yeah that now it just i love it it just kicks you it just kicks you when you're when you're when you're down when you're up when you're you drinking eggnog that you just get that in the teeth and it tastes like peppermint uh it's (laughs) it's something it's something i like i do like that when a performer can kind of take one word and do something with it not to not to toot my own horn but i did it i I did it once in a play that that i did it's kind of a sitcom on stage written by an old sitcom writer a producer of punky brewster as it happens in his old age wrote wrote plays about you know the the romantic entanglements of wealthy people wealthy white people and uh, i played one of them and i had a fight with my wife in this play and my the characters had a 
fight. And uh, my line was, uh, I love you, okay? Uh, in, in the middle of this fight. And so what I did was I had a, had a, like a bottle of whiskey at one end of the stage and I said, I love you. Okay. And I ran to my whiskey and poured a thing of wine. I always got a laugh. It, you know, they, they like that. Like, I love you. What else do you want from me? And I once saw, I once saw, um, on Broadway, Kiss Me Kate with Marin Mazzi uh, and Brian Stokes Mitchell and the, the mobsters who sang brush up your Shakespeare sang brush up. Yes, Shakespeare, start quoting him now. And it was uh, very good. It was very along that thing. I like I like to think of of uh, with all his mob connections, Frank Sinatra, have yourself a merry little Christmas now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and now we bring in now we bring in bring in Mark Lee. Mark, do you have a favorite Christmas song that you love very much? I, I I like everything that uh, I heard at the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, which we discussed last um, uh, last week. Uh, yeah. Have I not been Have I not been jawing it up around here enough? Christmas baby, please come home. I, that's the that's the the pinnacle for you. Uh, sure, let's go with that for now. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to point out, but I think we mentioned it last week. But it was certainly not the plan to uh, you know have a streak of two holiday themed podcasts in a row. But uh, here we are, uh, yeah. you know. Here we are as an olden days. Happy golden days yeah. of your. Happy golden days of your. Well, there, as we know, I'm, I'm here for it. If you're not here for it, well, a bah humbug to you. And um, go find another uh, pop, uh, ostensibly pop culture podcast where three hosts uh, ramble about whatever the hell they want to talk about. Exactly right. Like, uh, yeah, three white collar professionals give their opinions on on pop call <laughs> pop culture. So, uh, but as we know, you know, it's the holiday season. I don't know if you've heard, but there's a war on Christmas, guys. Uh, there's a war on Christmas, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, a hero. Right? Well, I don't want to say a hero because what's a hero? <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> a champion rises up. Red and furry, ready to take on whatever <laughs> challenges. Is he a hero, though? Some call him a monster. <laughs> oh. oh, I you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the monster. <laughs> it's time for Elmo to save Christmas. Pete, for reasons passing understanding, no, not reasons passing understanding. The reasons are you have young children. Uh, you uh, saw the video presentation Elmo Saves Christmas this yes. week, and I understand yes. that you have thoughts. Yes, this is an eminently overthinkable piece. Uh, if you don't celebrate Christmas, I don't really think it would detract from enjoying this film. Um, this okay, I just it was it's there's a couple of different reasons why I feel like this is a good thing for us to dig into and might be interesting. For one, what is it? It's an hour long Christmas special that aired on PBS in 1996. So, of course, there's the idea that Elmo is sort of a figure of Latter-day Sesame Street, but this is not Latter-day Sesame Street, really, from this perspective of today. This is still well on nearly 30 years ago. And so it's it's an hour long. It's God, from that's the mid-90s. so true, Pete. That's so true. I think of Elmo as a recent addition to the Sesame yeah. Street lineup. And that, of course, that has to do with when I grew up and was involved with Sesame Street. But but Elmo is a, as old as we are or only slightly less. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I not. Sure, I mean, sure. I, I'm, I'm 35 or whatever. Yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, but no, it is, it is. We are the same generation, roughly. He's an, he's an elder millennial. Uh, Elmo is. <laughs> Elmo is an elder millennial. <laughs> yes, and uh, I would, and I'd also such, like to add, by the way, uh, maybe Pete, you're going to come to this or not, but just in case not, um, 1996 was also the year that the Tickle Me Elmo hit Christmas uh, short oh, shelves. It yeah. was like the hot toy to get. Yeah. So th- that. So okay. So Elmo is at the peak. Or an a or a peak of popularity, probably not his all time peak of popularity, because there would at some point come, you know, people watching videos of Elmo on repeat billions of times all over the world. But in terms of conventional mass media, Elmo was the big thing this this particular Christmas. And there's this hour long Christmas special that doesn't really reflect that reality at all. And it has a bunch of choices in it that are so interesting and intense and strange and that that at the time were probably also strange but which now in retrospect are incredibly strange and i would just like to talk through some of them with you all because i feel like it says something about who we were who we are what's going on in the world and also uh i think that with, with there's a lot of we we before it was cool we were talking a lot about Hallmark Christmas movies right you know years ago when we were watching dozens of them and all that stuff uh, nowadays I feel like everybody's talking about how standard Christmas culture is Hallmark Christmas movies I feel like we could use a little verb from Dukes effect where we talk about something that takes a familiar concept and makes it incredibly strange mm-hmm. and I think Elmo Saves Christmas from 1996 is one way we could go about this because you think you know what it is and to an extent you're probably right but in other ways you're very much wrong. Uh, and and may I may I start with the first fact about Elmo Saves Christmas that throws it into uh, a pretty a pretty bizarre place. Please do, uh, if I Please may. Do. Okay, okay. So even before I mention to you what Elmo Saves Christmas is about, uh, I will say that the the way it is described by multiple people who meta tell the story is that Elmo saves Christmas and then ruins Christmas and then saves it again. And this is repeated for you more than once as the as the little movie gets started. But it is first articulated to you uh, by the framing device narrator of the piece. So this is a piece like The Princess Bride, where there is someone who is telling this as a story to a gathering of children. Although in this case, the gathering of children also includes Teldy Monster. Uh, and so, of course, it, it is still within – this is still happening you know, diegetically within the Sesame Street universe. But it is a story that is about Elmo that is being told by an older woman to a bunch of children. And uh, and that older woman, of course, I mean, who would you pick if you wanted to pick one woman from the mid 90s who really kind of gets across the vibe of Elmo, really what Elmo is going for? Right. Uh, I mean, you would also pick uh, it's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning and Tony Award winning and Grammy Award winning and a National Medal of the Arts Award winning and presidential presidential medal of freedom award winning uh uh, poet laureate of the black experience, Maya Angelou, to be the narrator of uh, Elmo Saves Christmas, which she is. Uh, and so Elmo, so Maya Angelou appears on camera, right? And, and it's like, oh, and it's like, oh, I know who that is. That's Maya Angelou. Like they don't announce her with any degree of fanfare. She just is like, they do like show, they show her before the credits. And then there's credits where she's mentioned as a guest star on the thing. Um, alongside uh, New York uh, theater and film uh, sort of legend Charles Durning, who is also cited as a guest star and the other secret guest star who is not listed in the initial credits for some reason. Uh, But yes, this is Maya Angelou 
of I know who the cage I know why the cage bird sings right of like the poem from Clinton's first inaugural right uh, who has sat down to tell you the story of how Elmo saved Christmas and uh, I mean I would ask if you have any reactions to this but I would I would say I would add something to the second part of this which is this tells me that this movie is going to go in one of two directions it's either going to be a cameo fest like uh, the Muppets Letters to the North Pole Christmas special, which just has it has like a soprano section in the middle. It's got like, you know, a celebrity every 15 minutes is on it. Uh, and, and it's just like, oh, they just got a whole bunch of people who wanted to be in a Christmas thing for kids. That's great. Nope. There's only <laughs> three famous actors in this thing who aren't from Sesame Street. And debatably, one of them isn't really famous enough for you to recognize them. And the other one isn't famous enough to be cited as a guest star. Uh, and then the other one is like, oh, this must be like a fairly serious movie right this must be a movie that has like or it must have some sort of heart right it must have some sort of real message uh that that kind of grounds it a little bit elmo must have some sort of moments of vulnerability uh and and this is a a movie about a magic that is punishing and abrupt and kind of uh not really happening on a vulnerable human level it is a highly alienated piece where everything is cartoonish that is taking place and my angelou's uh narration is uh, it does not it does not set up it does not seem to to what can I say deserve itself it doesn't it it brings this sort of question for the police piece to answer that the piece doesn't answer and kind of leaves hanging there um, which I guess also brings up the third reason why this might be happening which I think is worth sort of putting out there because people always forget it which is of course that like Elmo. Um, I mean, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but like, at least for me, canonically, Elmo is black. Um, and, and as in the actor who voices because him his is black. Puppet- because his puppeteer is black? Yeah. Who, well, who, and also the puppeteer, of course, the puppeteer has been replaced by somebody who I don't think is black now, but um, because of, you know, behavior issues and whatnot. Um, but Kevin Clash, right, was the guy and uh, who is still out there puppeteering for the Henson organization. I think he worked on the new Dark Crystal thing because uh, he's a living legend for them. But, you know, and of course, he he had some real bad behavior issues that they had to deal with. Uh, I guess they dealt with them. I don't really know enough about them to speak about the matter. But I, I've read interviews with him where he talks about trying to impart that sort of experience into Elmo's perspective, that that's sort of where Elmo is coming from. He doesn't see Elmo as somebody who is separate from his own experience in this matter. And then if you look through the different kind of guest stars and musicians that Elmo sings with over the years, uh, you know, I think there's a certain draw to be in near, near around Elmo as a sort of, uh, as, as a black kid. Um, I, but, the, but like the movie doesn't do that either, right? This movie doesn't really address that in a direct way, but it's just so it's, it's interesting to see a movie that starts with such a question and not an answer. Mm. As the presence of Maya Angelou, like has Maya has Maya Angelou been in other stuff like this? Uh, I guess I should have looked before the podcast started. But like, I think of Maya Angelou as a. Am, am I wrong to think of Maya Angelou as a truly major, like literary and cultural figure, sure. particularly of this era? And like, she was a, she was a, she was a yeah, a cultural figure. Like she had, yeah. she sat. You know the the. I guess we read like in the eighth grade. I know why the cage bird sings, but like then shortly after in the timeline of my life, she showed up on the podium at the, the presidential inauguration of, you know, uh, Bill Clinton's first presidential inauguration. So January 20, uh, yeah. 20th, uh, 20, uh, uh, 1993, she was, you know, there, uh, uh, doing, a uh, doing a poem. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm looking through, um, 
I'm looking through Maya Angelou. So uh, the Hall of Presidents, she is a voice talent oh, okay. in. Is that the? Is that a? Oh yeah, that might be the Disney thing. Um, well, that's yeah. the ride at Disney World, right? Yeah, she's in uh, Medea's Family Reunion. Okay, uh, so she has appeared in some some things that are not like uh, that are not like weighing heavily with the sort of uh, warranted necessity of her pathos and gravitas. Yeah, so in like um, for example, in in uh, released in 1993. Uh, you know, around the time of her her appearance at the uh, at the presidential inauguration, she was in Poetic Justice, uh, f- which was uh, Tupac and oh, who was it? Janet Jackson, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the post office, yeah. And then the so she she played a small part in that. Um, okay, so she's in and around this stuff, but she's not, but she's picky. She's not. She's not. Uh, she's not doing everything. Yeah. So she has I'm to looking. Get kind of I'm looking. Uh, I guess. Por- yeah. Por- Por- Porgy and Bess. In 1959, yeah. she was a dancer, uncredited dancer. She played a part in Roots in 1977. Well, I don't know. Yeah. If, I don't know if she knew like Alex Haley, maybe as you know, major literary figure. Do all the major literary figures know each other? Um, yeah, she hangs out with Jonathan Franzen every weekend. <laughs> uh, uh, they drink Franzia, which is couple, his brand of wine. He's much of, more well known for the wine than the book. I mean, let's things. put it this way, right? She's she's doing this. She's in and around pop culture in the 90s. She's not. Uh, she doesn't have any credits on The Simpsons. She doesn't have any credits on Seinfeld. So right, right, doing, right, right, right. She's not doing that. But yeah, she, she does do it. this. I'm she with did, you, Pete. Like, she did yeah, one episode surprised. of Moesha. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, so we're sort of getting a picture here. Okay, which is, uh, which is that she's she's deigned to grace us with her presence. Of course, it's Sesame Street. Anybody would be willing. Anybody can be explicably willing to do a Sesame Street thing. It was interesting that diegetically. This story is a Maya Angelou story because it's very different from a lot of her other stories, most of which I think don't feature a, uh, a magical reindeer named Lightning who really wants to pull Santa's sleigh and is super fast but is too young to do it and is sort of showing a lot of plucky stick in sort of getting to the, the big leagues of pulling Santa's sleigh. Hmm. Um, and there's a variety of other things in this, in this work that, that don't feel like a Maya Angelou story. Uh, but of course, I don't think they were making a serious effort to that effect, but they also don't make it entirely a joke. Uh, but anyway, that's the first thing that's weird about about Elmo's uh, El- Elmo's uh, Elmo Saves Christmas. And I guess uh, that brings me to the concept. And this is something that maybe you guys have heard other stories that are like this. This isn't an exotic concept. I think this is a, a common sort of idea in storytelling which is that uh, Elmo has the opportunity due to saving Santa from getting stuck in a chimney to make three wishes. Uh, his first wish is for a glass of water, which he could have gotten himself, but he was thirsty. And so this reflects that Elmo, of course, is, you know, he's like, he can be king because he doesn't want to be king. Like, he won't abuse the power of wishes for his own benefit. Like, he just sort of responds. But he's also a small child. And he responds to his immediate needs, but he's not greedy. Right. So like this sort of reflects that Elmo is like, you know, uncorruptible by the ring. Right. Is that like Elmo's first wishes for a glass of water and his second wish. Once he sees how happy Christmas has made everyone, not like on the night before Christmas when he's waiting to get his toys, but on the day after Christmas, when he's seen how happy everyone was because they got to enjoy Christmas together, he makes a wish for Christmas to happen every day. Oh, no. I know. What right? could possibly is, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. And this is like of a piece with, you know, the Midas touch, 
you know, there's like I remember very vividly. I don't know if you guys can think of other stories like this. A bunch have come to mind for me. One that comes to mind is an old episode of the My Little Pony cartoon from the 80s. Not the one that everybody liked that came out much later. And I don't I don't know whether they remade this or anything. But I remember an old episode of the My Little Pony cartoon where one of the ponies wishes that it would never rain because she wants it always to be sunny. And they do this by stepping on magic coins, which has a real kind of like monkey's paw horror movie vibe to it now that mm-hmm. I think about it. Horses making wishes by crushing coins with their feet. And of course, like I have a I don't remember much of the episode because this was well on, you know, 38 years ago. But I do remember them walking across like a mud cracked and barren wasteland of like blowing dust clouds and dead trees because like the rain in the world has stopped. Right. And and like this is this. Can you guys think of any other examples of like stories where Somebody has a nice thing that's kind of kind of ephemerally nice or sort of locally nice, and they make it globally globally the case out of a kind of either childlike or kind of unthinking greed dimension, and and it just sort of totally destroys everything. Every, the whole For world sure. is ruined because there's an episode of Ducktales where the nephews oh, um, replicate money and cause massive runaway inflation. Oh, I was it might about the be the current economic times. Setting. As a, as a hallucination, but I am like 99% sure this is a thing. If it's not, it should be. So there's like there's like a, a Weimar Republic episode of DuckTales. Exactly. It's like, yeah, we got We got to print some money in order to like pay off these reparations and whatnot. Uh, oh, man, that's uh, and, it, and it just destroys the global economy. Um, I mean, like Launchpad McQuack probably fixes it in some uh, yeah. um, screwball way. I mean, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is a simple one. Right, where he just wants yeah, the yeah. he wants the he wants the broom to help him do more work, to help him do his work because his work is annoying. All he's trying to do is automate a process. He's one of those classic Bill Gates lazy people. He puts in charge of things because lazy people find efficient solutions. Right, which is like I'm just going to build a, a script that automates getting the water, uh, you know, into the bucket by using the uh, the materials that I have lying around. I didn't build the script for it to make von Neumann machines and like flood the universe, but like you know that's what happened. Um, I mean, I guess, Matt, from, do programmers ever talk about uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice as, a, as an early example of uh, a video automation, of like a narrativized automation? I mean, it's, something that, it's something that you deal with a, a whole lot, right? Like, it's, it's just a normal thing in the course of, of programming a computer that you will create something that consumes a resource in a loop without any constraint on it. And it, like, essentially... Uh, it it essentially like crashes your computer. These things generally today are run in like virtual environments where it will like it will blow up the virtual environment and start you up uh, start you up a new one. Um, like uh, so it it doesn't have the kind of uh, it doesn't have the kind of uh, effect on like the rest of your day that it might have in the past. Though you know it used to be that like when that happened, you could like reboot your computer and and go have coffee for forty five minutes because uh, <laughs> you know it was just going to take that long for your uh, workstation to to come back up. But now, yeah, no, now they they. They just go away and you like fire up a new fire up a new Docker container. I was thinking, though, of a like, I guess that these things are this is this is why like this is a difference between between you and me, Pete. Like, I I remember an, an act of cruelty by my Latin teacher, which was giving us a test where like, you know, we had 10 minutes to fill out 
300 questions and like question 127 was like only write your name on the test and turn the paper over and up at the, <laughs> up at the top it said like make sure to read all the questions before you get started and it was like a way of teaching us about following directions by humiliating us and uh, I remember telling that story on the podcast and you were like that's awesome and I was like I'm triggered but uh I associate the kind of the kind of thing that you're talking about with like a really maladaptive parenting strategy along the lines of, oh, you want to smoke a cigarette, do you? Well, how about you smoke a case of cigarettes and like, uh, you know, um, and and making the, you know, making the kid, the kid do that. Like, you know, it's rather than understanding, rather than a universe, a kinder uh, a kinder, you know, more attuned universe, which would understand that when when Elmo says he wants Christmas every day, he is not speaking literally. <laughs> what he means yeah. is he wants to feel good every day. He wants to feel happiness and fellowship. He he sees. I mean, it sounds like he sees his friends happy, and he wants his friends to be happy. Like, and and this is the most, uh, you know, his his uh, what? How old is Elmo supposed to be? Like. Three and a half years old. Three and a half. Three and a half years old. Like I'm gonna live with me. Three and a half years old. Emma can't drive a car. <laughs> so yes. there, he can't. Uh, you know, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't have a, a quite a sense of causality. You can't even like. Uh, if I'm sorry, you're you guys are the the parents of young children, and I'm not. But like, you can't even punish a, a three and a half year old by taking something away later. Like, you know, if you don't stop playing that thing, you're not going to have dessert tonight, right? Like, because they don't even yep. make that association in yep. their uh in their brains right like so it just seems it seems unnaturally cruel to yes, me of to, maya angelou to tell the story of maya angelou <laughs> and if there's one thing we associate with maya angelou it is unnatural cruelty <laughs> so pete like take us to the next step right like you know how is it that elmo gets this wishes this into existence right does a vengeful god like make it happen to teach him a lesson well there's an this evil like, jinn yes yeah, no it's, it's santa claus man it's so <coughs> excuse me so santa is trapped in a chimney which you would think would never happen right you would think that santa at this point has traversed enough chimneys that he has various fail saves for getting trapped in a chimney because trapped in a chimney at, at elmo's house by coincidence and elmo pulls him out of the chimney and uh, and I guess I guess there is a question that we could answer. We could ask later about how this all happens or like the likelihood of this happening, because the reality is not necessarily what it looks like. And, and for reasons that will become apparent later. Anyway, Elmo pulls Santa out of the chimney. First, he pulls Santa's boot off of his foot. Then he pulls Santa out of the chimney. I thought he was going to pull Santa's sock off, revealing Santa's foot. But that would have been a little bit too much, too racy, even for the 90s. <laughs> um, and so Santa, who is, of course, played by. Uh, Charles Durning, who is a silver star winning, uh, you know, valorous decorated World War II soldier who became a burlesque usher and bouncer who was called on stage when someone was out sick and who then went on to be in like 50 off Broadway shows and Shakespeare in the Park and a whole bunch of Broadway and then Michael Mann movies and work with Al Pacino. And, uh, you know, he's in the sting and he does all sorts of other stuff. But in this movie, he plays Santa Claus and he plays Santa Claus with this really interesting mix of emotions about things where he's clearly an actual person like Santa Claus has kind of like physical limitations. You know, he's old. He's big. His job is tough. He's kind of tired. Right. He, he, he does Christmas and it's a lot of work. 
But he also has like a, a lot of generosity in his heart. And he does this because he likes to do it, but he doesn't have a I wouldn't describe him as jolly. This is not a jolly Santa. This is a Santa who is at work uh, and who has perhaps been doing this for a little bit too long. And uh, and whose big nose kind of pokes out above the big white beard uh, in a way that really only could uh, can be done by character actors who were alive in the 1930s, uh, even though at this point he was still on the younger side in that case. But at any rate, uh, Santa offers him a choice, which is to pick a stuffed animal, a stuffed bear or a snow globe that has three wishes associated with it. And Elmo, of course, uh, being, as we've mentioned, you know, essentially a good person, uh, picks the bear at first but then is talked into uh, getting the uh, getting getting the snow globe. But I think partly by the the ra- aforementioned reindeer, who is his buddy through the story. Uh, and so he picks the snow globe with three wishes, wishes for a glass of water. And then he saves his snow globe to use his other wishes later, because, of course, all three and a half year olds have that kind of ability to delay gratification. Right. Sure. <laughs> like uh, or more, he just loses interest in it and he picks it up later. Uh, and then later he wishes for it to be Christmas every day. Um, so that's how it happens is he, he gets there by saving Santa and Santa reveals later that when, when he has finished delivering the Christmas presents and then is called upon to do it again, uh, which of course everybody in the world, there's no like big, you know, you know, emanation of radiation. There's no visual cue. There's no, like, this doesn't transform the world. It's just that everybody gets told. There, there's some way in which everyone is told that it has to be Christmas again. That's the mechanism by which this works. So Santa is told by someone, didn't you hear? It's Christmas again. And he's like, oh, I really got to stop giving out these snow globes, right? Like, like and there's this idea that Santa has done this multiple times where he's given a small child a snow globe with three wishes and this kid wishes for Christmas every day. And then Santa has to do Christmas every day. And then he realizes that his folly uh, at having done this again. But he's been doing this for so long that he forgets how it all works. Is there a subtitle? So is, is it is it Elmo saves Christmas, comma, or comma Santa's folly? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I do think this is a bit of a multiverse movie. Uh, in which there are like timelines that happen and things that are kind of that happen and are erased and forgotten. Um, but in order to rectify his problem, it becomes a bit of a Christmas carolish kind of thing, but not really where lightning the reindeer imbues Elmo at Santa's behest with a Christopher Reeve time travel mechanism where he can fly around the earth so fast that he can move uh, forward in time and then he discovers later in the one hour long movie that he can also travel backward in time by traveling around the world so fast. Um, I mean, you guys, of course, remember the ending of the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Yes. And what are your feelings about that? Do you guys have strong thumbs up or thumbs down about the end of the first Superman movie? Isn't I mean, like, uh, it, it reminds me of the end of L.A. story where the all the, the compasses do. You know, I don't know that the, it's a it's a very sort of pathetic. The idea of the pathetic fallacy is that the what the the outside environment uh, mirrors the um, the feelings inside. But I, I feel like the ending is it the first Superman movie or is it a is it the one with the nuclear weapons? No, the nuclear weapons he flies to space and and flings them into sun into the sun. And yeah, then, but there and, are also nuclear weapons in the first Superman movie. Um, okay, maybe well, that's at least why there's I'm... giant missiles, but they're not framed as nuclear weapons because they get sent into the San Andreas Fault to blow California into the ocean. Yeah, right. Which are you are, now? Are you glad that didn't happen in real life? That it did. Yeah, absolutely. Though I mean, okay. I guess I guess like California... you would rather be living in Otisburg. Um, uh, 
the um, I'm going too deep on my cuts here. These that, are, yeah, these are was, not current references. That was too deep. Uh, that was too deep yeah. a cut. But the um, I like. Uh, but the but the this is kind of a reverse pathetic fallacy, right? Where Superman is like, I have such superhero, I have such superhero powers that I can actually make the external environment conform to my grief. You know, and yes, that, that, he gets like, so sad that Lois Lane dies right. that he flies around the earth so fast that he reverses time. He reverses he reverses time, and like it's not, Sorry, it's not like it's not like uh, you know I don't know it's not like the storms supplement my tears, the thunder echoes my rages. It's like no, I'm gonna make it. I'm I'm gonna make it happen, and it's uh, you know it, good good for him. But Elmo does something similar. You're saying? Well, it's not only just similar; it looks exactly the same. Uh, which is a really interesting reference because they show the earth and they show him flying around the earth and he show the sort of earth turning as a communication of like whether how time is passing mm. as he's doing it. So it's the same idea. Uh, of, of course, you know, it doesn't really make sense that changing the direction that the earth turns would turn time backward. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the, it's supposed to be the Superman thing is supposed to be understood either as Science doesn't matter because Superman or as, you know, uh, expressionistic, you know, as as artistically symbolic. Mm. Right. The, the sort of the strength of Superman has now gone past the point where we are attempting to represent it on film. We are now presenting it on film. We are mm. kind of giving it forward as an idea. Um, uh, and, and in that sense, the sort of idea of I, I circle the world and and in doing so, the world turns uh, is is communicated in this manner. And Mark, you know what I'm talking just, about, right? That, yeah, yeah. Just, just to be clear, right? What's going on is that he basically he just turns, goes back in time, and then like um, makes it so that Santa doesn't give him. Well, that's the, how it the, ends. The magic snow globe. So that's how it ends. So like, so the way See, that it ends, I, just, I have a problem with that. I mean, tell, you have tell a problem me, with that? expand it out a little bit more, but then I'll tell you what the problem I have with that. So like, the way he moves forward in time to different points in the year to see what has happened to society because it has been Christmas every day up until that point. Mm-hmm. And then he makes it to a full year to the hellscape that has resulted from his <laughs> wish where there's like, Oh, and I'll get into more detail about the hellscape and its specific characteristics. And then he and lightning realize, well, if we can use the sled to go forward in time, we could probably use it to go back in time and kind of stop ourselves. The one idea would have been stop yourself from saving Santa, like let Santa die in the chimney. <laughs> <laughs> And that way you never get the snow globe and you never make the wish because never having Christmas would have been better than what happened because Christmas was every day. By the way, it's never made clear that everybody's being forced to do this. It's never even raised as an option that everybody could just stop. Like it just you just hear that it's Christmas. In that way, it works like the world of a three and a half year old. Like you hear that it's Christmas and it's Christmas. Right. And, and that's what it it's is. It's the adults that are just omnipresent around you. Yeah, yeah. And so in this case, the adults sort of function as children where like someone has told them that it has to be Christmas every day. And so they're just like, well, I guess I have to go buy a bunch more presents. And it's like, well, yeah, but you could just not. You could just be like everybody could just not do it. right? Like, uh, but no, they have to do it because it's Christmas. And because of because of this, uh, there's a variety of intense, dire consequences. And this, yeah. But no, Elmo does not like Looper shoot himself to prevent himself from doing this in order to uh Although Looper would be if young Elmo shoots old Elmo, right? Um, and he's saying, like, my work here is done. He doesn't trap Santa in the chimney. He has Elmo. He hasn't picked the other one. Like, he hasn't picked the stuffed animal rather than yeah. the uh, 
Although there's something that happens to the stuffed animal, which is also interesting, which is also based on the what are the things that emerge from this notion that Christmas is happening every day? And what are the hor- what are the horrible horrors that result? Uh, and the stuffed animal is one of them. Yeah. Okay, um, so let, let me just come in here and just take the obvious problem with this, right? Okay. Which is that, like, now my understanding of watching Sesame Street with my children is that a lot of the show has to deal with showing consequences of actions mm-hmm. and how young people um, react to them in, um, let's say, uh, constructive and not so constructive ways, right? Right. But you have sort of a very obvious continuity of action, reaction, you know, consequence um, and dealing with those consequences. Now, what you described to me, Pete, is not a story like that, right? Where like, you know, he like sort of sees the consequences of what he does, but they're kind of not real and he doesn't actually have to live with them. And it just it strikes me as exceedingly out of step with kind of the, the, the Sesame Street formula and ethos. Yeah. Was that your reaction to it as well? I mean, is it that like so off the mark? Like, uh, I, I would say I would say that it feels very different. Here's what I would say um, that there is another story that is being told. It would be a better story and more of a Maya Angelou story if it were to- told from the perspective of two of the characters who are Grover and Big Bird, because um, Grover and Big Bird have specific arcs in this uh, story that are more grounded in the consequences of their actions, or at least the consequences of Elmo's actions, right? What happens to them uh, happens to Elmo and it happens to Grover. And particularly, it happens to them gradually, right? It happens to them in real time. So Big Bird, uh, so Snuffleupagus has gone to Cleveland to visit his granny for Christmas, but it's okay. Big Bird's really sad. There's this long, awkward scene where Big Bird and Snuffy are sort of almost making out, where Big Bird is like kind of snuggling Snuffy's trunk and stroking it and talking to him and acting real sad that Snuffy is leaving for so long. But then Snuffy reveals he's only going to be gone for one day and he'll be back the day after Christmas. And so what because Christmas happens every day, Snuffleupagus is functionally dead. Like he's never coming back and Big Bird is never going to see him again. And like because he has to be at his granny's on Christmas and Christmas is every day forever. So so Snuffleupagus is never returning, which is like if you know the history of Snuffleupagus, like it is not a new thing that Snuffleupagus is associated with a storyline that is kind of unintendedly overly upsetting or strange. Right. Like uh, which is the whole thing about like, oh, he's an invisible friend. But, you know, they don't want what was, what was the original? It was like, oh, I thought it was because he's a woolly mammoth that has been like, you know, uh, resurrected and is completely out of lost out of out of time. No, no, no. It's okay. because he's, he was originally an invisible friend and they were worried that that and there were all these scenes where where Big Bird was trying to tell people stuff like up was real and nobody was listening to him. And they were concerned that they were modeling a behavior where children wouldn't be believed that they like said that someone was abusing them. Uh, and it was like convincing oh, children right, that right. like okay. so they stopped doing it. They thing. made stuff yeah. up like it's visible so that children didn't have that behavior model for like if you try to tell adults something, they won't believe you. Um, and they because they didn't want that to be the message of the show. Um, but in this case, yeah, stuff up like this is never coming back. And Big Bird just gets increasingly despondent over the course of the year and just really, really sad, which is also not a Sesame Street story because and, generally and, speaking. And, and just to be clear, right, Elmo doesn't have to like apologize to Big Bird 
for doing the thing that made him feel really sad, right? It's just as if all that yeah. never happened, right? Well, uh, well, Elmo is outside of the events, right? He's like traveling through it like Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, he does talk to people, but he mostly watches them. Um, and so, like, there's there's no like, where is Elmo now? There's no like, oh, there's me. That's what I'm doing. No, like, he is he is the the uh, the traveler who is kind of observing all of this. And you kind of hear Big Bird's soliloquies. You hear Big Bird talk to other people as he like experiences this grief. Um, And eventually it turns out that Granny was going to come to Sesame Street for Christmas after all. So after everything's fixed, Suffolabagus is even there on Christmas. Uh, But that's a little bit of a continuity error, but I think you can chalk that up to Santa Claus. You know, this is Santa Claus magic. So, you know, you want to put that little extra English on it where it's like, okay, we made things right and we made things a little bit better. Because, you know, it's Santa Claus. That's kind of how it works. Um, the more interesting one is perhaps Grover, who is, uh, who has picked up seasonal work selling Christmas trees. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he has to work (laughs) on Christmas every day. So he has to work every Christmas and he's selling Christmas trees and he presides over the endangerment and extinction of the Christmas tree as an organism that happens over the course of a year where everybody has to get a new Christmas tree every Christmas. That's (laughs) actually amazing. And and it's it's taught through a series of sketches where it's like the older I get, the more I appreciate the pairing of Grover with the old man who he waits on in the restaurant. Or like the middle-aged guy with the bald middle-aged guy with the mustache where it's like, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. And it's like, what is it doing? The backstroke, you know, like that kind of thing. You know, that whole series of old sketches like Grover wears like French cuffs without a shirt and like a, a bow tie. Yes. Right. And is like the way the mater D and whatnot. This guy shows up every every Christmas to buy a Christmas tree from Grover and gets the update for like the the hellscape that Grover's life has become as he's no longer able to like find Christmas trees as Christmas trees have become incredibly expensive. At one point, he just comes out there and there's like a giant, you know, sort of skeleton Christmas tree with no needles on it behind him, just utterly dead. Right. Um, And he's when he says he's selling Christmas tree. Christmas trees uh, on sale for 25 cents. He reveals that he's not selling Christmas trees for 25 cents. He is selling the sign that says Christmas trees on sale for 25 cents and no one will take it. So he lowers the price to 15 cents. Uh, But Grover, of course, is a character who is really in his element when he's distressed. Uh, And and so Grover kind of going through this, this whole thing, which Elmo can't possibly comprehend, right? Like as a three and a half year old, this whole idea of like, wait a minute, so Christmas trees grow in the ground somewhere else where I've never been. Mm. Uh, and and then, like, they have to get cut down. And Grover is going out there and is, like, going to a dealer who's cutting down literally every Christmas tree in the world and bringing them all to New York City so that Grover can sell them on the street. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's intense, man. This is an intense – this is the part of it that feels kind of like a Maya Angelou story, mm. right, where it's like Grover needs to be freed from this horrible drudgery that he's doing. Uh, but the, but in those senses, so in the sense of Elmo himself, Elmo himself only does this for other people, and he only experiences the consequences of it through observing other people. So he is both like personally more or less blameless until at the end when he sort of announces to everybody that this is something that he always had the power to fix because he always had a third wish that he could use. In which case, everyone gets very upset with him, uh, and, and uh, you know, or like you know. Uh, uh, or just, you know, his sort of associative feelings. But, but and, uh, he, and Big he, Bird, yeah. Big Bird goes up to him and says, you mean to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. 
It's the the best scene in the movie because there's one person, of course, who's okay with all this. Uh, I, I could talk a little bit more about some of the other things that are Oscar. messed up about this Oscar, world. Because Oscar because he's loves a, it. Yeah, <laughs> that, I, I didn't even know. I guessed that. Yeah. Boom. Oh yeah. Mic yeah, drop. totally. O- Oscar shows up in the exact you know Sid Field you know all is lost moment to talk about how great everything is that Christmas has ruined everything and how happy he is that the streets are full of trash right that everybody's unhappy. And, and that uh, this holiday that used to bring everyone joy has now become this Wait, just albatross. The, street, the streets are full of trash because the sanitation workers have the day off. Like is because that everybody idea, keeps wrapping and oh, gets true. I guess the sanitation workers have the day off, but also like the streets are piling up with wrapping paper and 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 uh, and boxes uh, that need to be taken away. But yeah, nobody's so that's so there's a weird combination of things having to do with work in this show, which are worth <coughs> excuse me worth pardon me. Oh, it's too it's too much. It's too much for Pete yeah. to, to talk about. I can't about handle that. it. Yeah. So there are there are two things about work that are happening. One, the elves and Santa all have to go back to work. Along uh-huh. with Grover and other people who have to work on Christmas. So it's the people who have to work on Christmas, and you even get to see a scene where the elves are preparing for their vacation when they are informed that Christmas is happening, and all the elves are puppets. <laughs> And they're all like, my vacation. Oh, we got and the alarm goes back on. It's like, we gotta get back to work. Uh, and they're all like, no. Uh, they should have tried collectively bargaining. They should, they should. But and, Santa, yeah. of course, they go to talk to Santa about it. And he's like, I gotta stop giving out these snow globes to small children. And uh, and then and but then everybody else isn't allowed to work on Christmas because they have the day off. So Luis and Maria. They they want to go back to work because the fix it shop is full of broken down toasters and appliances and stuff. And they really need to do all this stuff. But they're they're not going to work because they don't work on Christmas and they eventually their store goes out of business because they don't. But presumably, presumably rent keeps getting collected or something right? like but uh, but they don't they can't. It's not like I can't do it. It's like we don't do it. And that's just a really interesting moment. We don't work on Christmas and it's Christmas. And so we are going to go hungry, right? Because we don't have, we don't have a job. Our, our business is gone. Um, Hooper's store eventually has to close. But I think that that one is more because he has to keep going shopping. Like Mr. Hooper keeps having to leave to go shopping. Uh, it's not, it's actually not the original Mr. Hooper. It's the second guy in this one. Um, uh, he has already passed. But he has to keep leaving and closing the store because he has to go buy more Christmas presents, which means the store is never open, which means the store goes out of business. Uh, but, yeah, there's this weird dynamic around work where everybody who's forced to work on Christmas is forced to work forever. And everybody who gets the day off dies, like like loses their livelihood. They don't really die. They don't show them dying. But it's like every, they all lose their livelihood. And as as uh, as Elmo walks through the streets, like all of their doors are boarded up. Right. Like the, the whole the street is vacant. Nobody's there. Right. Everything's closed down. Um, because because of the holiday that lasts forever, um, which is just I don't really know. I, I guess the idea there is just to explain it to a child, right? Which is, which is like, you know, you can't have every day off because then you wouldn't do anything. And I guess you know Maria and Luis are presented as actually enjoying their job, and so is, so is Hooper Store. Like the the businesses that people run on Sesame Street are positive places, right? Like they are the people who do them like doing them. And never getting to do them creates a loss for the neighborhood, right? Like if the place wasn't there, everybody would be sad. So there's not the sense that they are like being exploited by their necessity of having to work or the idea that like, well, what if we could just automate all this and then you wouldn't have to work? Um, That's not really part of the discourse here. Uh, The discourse is like, 
you know, work is part of the community. And so if you can, if and holidays are important so that people can appreciate each other. But if you have them all the time that you don't have work and then you don't have a community at all, um, it's really, it's really uh, tough to parse fully exactly what's going on with all this. Um, the Luis and, and Maria thing is, is definitely a, uh, a bit of a head scratcher, um, especially alongside how funny the elves are. And this is also set against the reality, the other sort of weird hellscape reality, which is that It's a Wonderful Life is the only thing that's ever playing on television because uh, it plays on Christmas, on repeat. And so everybody is always watching It's a Wonderful Life all the time. Mm-hmm. Like there's TVs that are showing it. It's like RoboCop, where everyone's watching the uh, <laughs> I'd Buy That for a Dollar show in the store. In the, it's, it's playing in the storefronts as people walk by. It's just like you, there are clips of Jimmy Stewart, right? You know, uh, um, talk, like for, with, with sort of trenchant lines from It's a Wonderful Life being repeated during this whole experience. Um, I mean, I don't know. Would you want it to be a holiday every day? Assuming that you actually had some sort of source of sustenance. Oh God, not 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 this one. No, <laughs> not no, this we one. Would, and we do this right, and so like we don't do this for sustenance. But, you know, we like we like doing some 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 yeah, work. We never podcast on um, Christmas. If it were Christmas every day, we'd never podcast. Oh my gosh, we think do, about that. We do podcast on Easter though, because it's a it's a Sunday. But generally, you're done by the evening. You're done with. Uh, you know, whatever By that Easter tradition on. of trying to podcast from somewhere along I-91 or I-15 or like State Route 15 from like a rest stop parking lot because I'd be driving home on Easter and trying hello, to podcast. Yeah. Hello, can you got hear me? And the, the, uh, <laughs> I can't believe of, I did that. Spirit uh, of Vengeance it, it, with the, uh, <laughs> and the uh, uh, Baudrillard and the, the most important thing uh, and the how my Hey, speaking Happy of Easter, Pete, what happens yep. to the rest of the holidays? When oh, Christmas yeah, is every so day? that's a great question, because they do visit Easter, uh, and that's where the third guest star appears, who is not credited as a guest star in the opening credits of the show, which is the Easter Bunny. Nicholas wearing Cage. A, no. Uh, it's not Nicholas Cage. Somebody bigger than Nicholas Cage. What? Sideways. Bite your tongue. Sideways. <laughs> no, no. Shorter, but wider. Uh, somebody <laughs> think- <laughs> Danny DeVito. <laughs> Somebody more beloved of this by this podcast, not of this podcast. Someone more beloved Tilda by this Swinton. podcast than Har- Tilda Swinton. Oh no, I guessed it. Sorry, I guessed it. No, it's not Tilda Swinton. It's Har- Harvey Firestein. Yes, it's Harvey Firestein. Is it Christmas? And he's playing the Easter Bunny who has to celebrate Christmas rather than Easter because you know his whole holiday is being overshadowed that he has to do this. And he's wearing like makeup on his face. He's this is like. Broadway Harvey Firestein has shown up to do this, not Independence Day Harvey Firestein. Which also came about the same year, right? 1996? Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's calling his mother. He's going to call his lawyer. Um, but man, it's. Uh, yeah. So he. So in this Is weird his situation. voice because the Easter Bunny has taken up smoking because he's, you know, so, you know, I don't know, depressed and that Easter is not coming around that he has these self destructive habits now? Oh yeah, it's because he has a uh, he has an allergy to peppermint. No, you, I don't know. Yeah, what do you do? What do you do? Is it like is it set theory? Do you do the the like the the union of uh, holiday traditions when Easter falls on Christmas, or do you do the intersection of holiday traditions and you like uh, eat eat candy and that's it? 
Well, it's a hashtag hustle situation where the other holidays are forced to figure out how to pitch themselves in the context of happening on Christmas, which is still, despite happening every day, the biggest thing that's happening to everyone. So, like, it's presented as the Easter Bunny selling it to you um, from behind a counter. Yeah, and of I, course. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, sorry. I'm, I didn't want to. I want to finish the thing. Like that's uh, yeah. that's tough. Like uh, holiday Shark Tank. I'm not sure who would win holiday Shark Tank when you consider the whole year's worth of holidays. Maybe one of the fireworks oriented holidays. Yeah, who would? Who is the biggest sure thing? I mean, Valentine's Day is like it should be Valentine's Day, but it won't be. Right. No, it's not. Yeah, because that's this. There's so much um, variance, right? Valentine's Day is yeah. it really depends on what you do for Valentine's Day. But like, you know, the fire department, your like local fire department is going to set up fireworks at the football stadium, right at the high school yeah. uh, on the 4th of July. And that I feel like is something that that everyone can. Can you agree? On? But what if they're also dressed as ghosts while it's happening? Wasn't that be awesome? Um, what, who do you think would win if you had to pick to either have if two people came up to you and one said, we're going to have this thing called Christmas. This is what it is. And describe Christmas. And then somebody else came up to you and said, we're going to have Mother's Day and describe to you what Mother's Day is. Which one do you think would get picked by the sharks as the holiday that needs to happen? I don't know, but my mother's crying either way. Yeah, (laughs) and obviously there are other there are other this is also like this has to be the last one where Sesame Street does a special entirely about Christmas where no other holiday is referenced. Sure. That that was kind of bizarre. Right. Which was like and I know this podcast is kind of bizarre in that respect as well. But like, I don't remember there being any Hanukkah, maybe Harvey Firestein. First of all, Harvey Firestein being the Easter Bunny is itself pretty funny. Yeah. But uh, but. But like, well, there's Pete, no remember, remember back in biblical times, the Easter Bunny was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh man, it's it's funny because the Easter Bunny is German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, it's like it's it, there's no Diwali, there's no nothing, right? It's like there's no it's my Angelou, but I didn't see any Kwanzaa in this thing, right? So like, uh, it's just Christmas, which is part of the nightmare, I think. You have to think that Elmo does not visit the family that like, you know, the Jewish family that's uncomfortable because they have Hanukkah. But really, you know, they live in a society where Christmas is much more valued and they, they feel very left out of everything. And, and that must be really bad for them, too, especially because, you know, they don't have jobs or and their houses are covered in trash because um, everybody is living in this hexcape. But yes, so I will get to the best part. Um, the best part is when Elmo has told everyone that he has a, a magical globe of three wishes. After this has been happening for a year, he tells everyone in Sesame Street, he reveals himself and tells everyone that he has a magical globe of three wishes, that this is all his fault, and that he could reverse it by using his third wish. Now that he has sufficient reason to reverse his wish. Um, and, and he says, you know, there's something else that I was going to wish for. And this is where Oscar the Grouch is really paying attention because Elmo says, I was, I was going to wish for rollerblades. And Oscar <laughs> just yells out, go for the rollerblades. <laughs> go for the rollerblades. Yep. And it's like, go for the rollerblades. I can't even do Oscar absent Harvey Firestein at this point, especially with the cough. But the idea that it's like Elmo getting rollerblades in 1996 is just a fun little, I guess rollerblades lasted the test of time a little bit. I've seen, 
I felt like rollerblades were an inexorable decline, but that seems to have leveled off and or ended, right? Like rollerblades are a thing now. Again? How much of a thing are, are rollerblades when you see them? I don't, I don't know. know. I see I them thought, occasionally. I thought all kids just go on, on hoverboards now or like, you know, I don't know, electric electric uh, scooters or something like that. It's, They've got yeah, the yeah, wheels that just like pop out of their sneakers. Oh, the Heelys. State wherever the, the heck they wheelies, want. Yeah. I feel like there were a lot of other things that showed up to be the next rollerblades and they were. And then they left. And, that, and, and yet I still see rollerblading happening. Oh, there's apparently an article from the New York Times saying that inline skating is back, and it's dated uh, night, uh, 2022. Oh, good. Well, which thank means goodness. That in, time, inline skating yeah. was back in 2018, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the time is on it. It's it's out again, guys. Can I can I tell? I mean, we're we're running the bend of an hour. It's yeah, time for yeah, us yeah. to wrap up. But I need to to share a childhood trauma with you, which was that I had regular skates, not rollerblades. Uh, and when it was time for like roller skating week in PE, when everyone like brought in their roller skates and roller skated around, uh, I was the only kid with non inline skates and I was, I was taunted mercilessly That's for, brutal. for my, my, this like, is also Southern California as well, where I feel like, uh, I just had this image of like, uh, of Barbie rollerblading yeah. on the beach, right? Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. It's a hundred percent just down the, down the, like the bike path, the boardwalk, uh, you know, path there is, uh, right. And like, um, yeah, no, I remember one kid, he was so cool. He came in, he kept his roller skates in the original box so that they wouldn't get like scuffed up or anything. And it, it reminded me of the kid in, uh, the wizard, uh, putting on, like taking out the Nintendo power glove and putting on the Nintendo power glove and saying the power glove, it's so bad. And, uh, you know, I felt like that every time I see Rose. So I don't know, but you know, I'm, I'm like, uh, re-traumatized every time anyone talks about roller skates and I have a, um, uh, I have a, uh, I have a thing, but, but I guess now I can, now I can get them now that they're not cool again for a second time. I probably can, can find a pair even in the store. And, and just to clarify, so this instant here where like Elmo comes face to face, sort of, sort of, sort of comes face to face with the consequences, but that it then gets undone because he goes back in time is that correct pete yes he goes back in time um and he stops say he stops he stops elmo from picking the snowman <laughs> and but he, but and he stops himself like because that, that like he's not confronted with the time traveler's paradox in that way i don't mm. believe so i think he steps into his own reality although i might have stopped paying as mm. close attention at this point as i okay. should have because um, I was also watching this with a a one year old Elmo fanatic, which was why I was watching it in the first place. Elmo, Elmo, Elmo! I want to watch. You know, whenever it's she, it's her turn to pick anything. You know, she always says Elmo. So we watch lots of Elmo and we listen to lots of Elmo. I don't know what she thinks Elmo means. It might mean like something. It might be a broad pronoun of some kind for mm. for thing. But uh, but we show her a lot of Elmo. She seems to really enjoy it. Um, but there's this other dimension, and this is sort of my final note on what happens, which is that the elves are so burned out by their repeated Christmas labor that they stop they, – they lose track of what animals are. And they start making these hybrid abomination stuffed animals that are based off of their sort of exhausted fever dream idea of what animals exist. So they start making moo bunnies and cabots, which are like combinations of cows and rabbits – which sort of reflect their lack of quality and also their kind of descent into madness as the elves continually have to work. And so ultimately, in the first timeline, Emmo has the option of picking a pink bear. 
But in the second edition of the return to the timeline, Elmo picks a Moo Bunny, uh, which is sort of like, oh, but in the sense of the timeline, the Moo Bunny shouldn't actually exist, except this is Santa Claus. And one of the ways that Santa Claus operates in terms of magic and stories is that there's always something left over to remind you of the magical encounter you had with Santa Claus that has ceased to uh, exist, mm-hmm. right? It's like the Bell and Polar Express is like the Moo Bunny, but it's this reminder that at one point you drove the North Pole to madness, um, and and now you have this stuffed animal to remember it by. And yeah, and that's the end. And Maya Angelou wraps it all up in a nice bow for you, so that you can give it to your friends on the uh, 30, 365th Christmas of the day. Because uh, isn't wouldn't you wish it was Christmas every day? Absolutely. Well, it's going to be podcast day every. <laughs> Every day. So thanks, Pete and Mark, for agreeing to do 365 days of overthinking it podcasts back to back to back. Oh, yeah. Uh, Every day. Yeah. It's going to be exciting. About this one movie. We're going to do it. It's going to be crazy. (laughs) Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then, and, and then we'll be back. We'll be back next week for more Overthinking It podcast about Elmo Saves Christmas. Uh, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject Elmo Saves Christmas to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't. Elmo knows how to save Christmas. You have to write a computer virus. And fly it to the alien spaceship and upload it. Oh, I have to call Santa Claus. I have to call my accountant.